Great to see everybody. We are in our second intensive, focusing on learning together and what a good thing it is to do that. And we had a very, uh, I think, just enjoyable and rich time last week. And so I'm looking forward to sort of engaging us all together and learning together this particular uh, evening. I did want to remind everybody, yes, well, get, we get the lights up there. I want to remind everybody just about a couple of things that uh, we had talked about last week. And um, I'll, I'll explain in a moment. But this entire uh, study was, as you know, birthed out of a, of a desire to see, to see people um, be able to have more tools to work with, to be able to grow in a more effective way as a student of God's word. And we spent a lot of time talking about the value of the Older Testament as it relates to the New. We're going to dig more into that. But I did want to remind everybody about a couple of things. Remember, we have um, different resources that are available. I just wanted to, again, remind you, you know, we've got um, the scriptures that we try to get in the three different translations there, the New King James Version, the NLT, the New Living Translation, and the um, ESV, which is the a newer version as well, and they're all there. They're just uh, easy to get. Uh, if you don't have something, you just want to just make it a, a quick little, you know, tangible way. You don't have to order it through the mail. It's there, very inexpensive. We wanted to get them in a way that was most cost-effective as possible. And then we have the, uh, also a study Bible. Remember we talked about the difference between a reading Bible and a study Bible. A study Bible usually has references, cross-references. It has notes in it to help explain some of the passages. Um, and we have a couple of different ones as well, different styles. And then last week we mentioned the More Than the Carpenter book. We know that a lot of you uh, were uh, very much interested in the argument, and I mean that in a good way, the apologetical sense of an argument of the, the idea of Jesus, Lord, liar, and lunatic. And, and, and McDowell, in his book More Than a Carpenter, really does an effective job at showcasing you know, um, that you know, uniqueness of Jesus. And then it also talks about the reliability of the biblical records, another inexpensive but really valuable a little book that had an impact on me when I was just starting to really follow Christ, and it's been a blessing for generations. Now, what's interesting is McDonald's, I mean, McDowell's book, I should say, More Than a Carpenter, is actually his, that chapter on Lord, Liar, and Lunatic is really connected to a larger argument that was made by C.S. Lewis. And C.S. Lewis, um, in his book, Mere Christianity, which is one of his great pieces. I mean, he's written a number of books. Any, anybody who starts reading C.S. Lewis and, and talks about C.S. Lewis, I mean, this, this man of, of tremendous intelligence and uh, a wonderful deep thinker who had this unique gift of being able to capture um, deep principles in simple ways that had sort of an enduring quality generationally. And so C.S. Lewis is a great Christian writer, often quoted, maybe the most quoted Christian writer um, of our day, C.S. Lewis. And he has a whole story of his conversion, how he went. You know, he was actually influenced by the, the group that J.R. Um, Tolkien was in. And uh, they were all knew each other. Anyway, that's a whole different story as well. And then we have, um, we have another book called The Reason for God, which is a more modern book from Tim Keller. All these books are available. They're, again, we just bought them as inexpensively as we could and wanted to have them here in case you wanted. They all do the same thing. They really give you nice, um, you know, good, healthy, thoughtful arguments 
to sort of support principles that we're talking about here, especially as it relates to Jesus and the, and the, the scriptures and how impactful and important they are. And then I, we often talk, oh, there was one more thing. They reminded me. Um, bought the Bibles that had bigger print. I'm, I'm actually going to have to use them. It's unfortunate. It's come to this. But um, anyway, so we, that was the most popular <laughs> last week. So, so those of you who want those, we ha- we'll have those as well. Again, this is all about resourcing you. One of the things that we often do is we, um, we in, Christ- in Christian circles, uh, talk about uh, having devotions. And devotions is a very interesting word because it's, it's sort of a, a, a Christian vernacular word. It's a, it's a word that sort of, you know if you've been following the Lord and you, you've been around those who are Christians, you'll use the word, have you done your devotions? Or for my devotions, I did this. But again, I don't want everybody, to, I don't want to assume that, that everybody kind of knows what that even means. Uh, you know, you might hear it and you go, what are they talking about, this, this devotion? Uh, devotions are, uh, one, it, it's from a word that we, you know, connect to the idea of being devoted. So there's a sense of devotion and affection. When Christians often use the word, um, our Christ followers use this word of devotions, they were usually talking about their time that they uniquely spend with Jesus. Um, to just be with the Lord, be in his word. Oftentimes, we will read a devotional along the way. And uh, it it has to do with this whole practice of just having a dedicated time in our week, usually on a daily basis, because Jesus said, give us this day our daily bread. When we're at our best, it's a daily daily kind of devotional practice that we have. We might spend time praying, we might spend time reading and reflecting, um, you know, there's a read his word uh, can be a significant piece of our devotional life, right? And and oftentimes we'll there are other things that Christians will have called devotionals. And devotionals, uh, there's you know classical ones, there's ones that are more modern. Um, you know, I have it in my hand uh, one from Henry Nouwen called Bread for the Journey, a classic one from Cowan called Streams in the Desert. One of my favorite old-time writers, E. Stanley Jones. They're, what they do, what, and then the one that I actually have been using this year and I do frequently um, throughout my life, actually, has been one called Day by Day by Vance Havener. And all they are uh, is basically a devotional, which I like to use as part of my devotions. A devotional basically is just has each day of the year a, a verse and a reading, a kind of commentary. And those devotionals that, it's just so simple, but, and yes, it's one person's uh, sharing their own thoughts, but it's, it's a, one of those things that I like to work in as part of my, uh, you know, sort of overall devotional life. Just, if, this would be true if I wasn't a pastor. Before I was ever a pastor, I was first and will always be firstly a, a follower of Jesus. Um, I, I, you know, before I ever had any responsibility leading, I had um, just a desire to want to follow the Lord in my own life with him. And devotions were a very important part of that growth. In fact, one of the things that I remember, and we still have these, we just do these quarterly. You'll see these little daily bread, uh, you know, slotted in the foyer and by the Connection Center. These are just little one-day devotionals. And what they do is they give a verse and a reading, a couple of readings, and then a commentary. In this case, it's usually a modern story. But I remember reading the Daily Breads when I was just a teenager. And I would read different, there were different types of these little booklets. 
but they're designed to just be part of your, your daily devotional life. And so one of the things that I was wanting to do, and I'm gonna, I, I have a lesson to, to share um, that we're going to jump into, just like we did last week. But one of the things I want to do for the, this week and in the next two weeks is just have someone come up and share a little idea of how they, in their own devotional life, have been able to implement certain practices. So I wanted there to be a practical component to our time together. My goal was to see us all more equipped, perhaps sparked. The thing about devotions is there usually, and again, that practice of constructing a consistent pattern of engaging the Lord and his word in our life. Usually devotions are sort of tailored uniquely to where we are or um, a particular style that we find works in our lives. The key is vibrancy. And to try to keep, there's healthy habits that keep us alive with God. And so learning how to incorporate those habits become a very important part for us. But every now and then, we need to shake it up and do something differently. And and, um, I wanted you to get a chance to hear a different one share. So I'll have this week and the next two weeks, someone just share a little piece of how they approach devotions as a way of just getting us to consider options and ways in which we can do it. Um, I have, most of you know uh, my my daughter, Chloe. Chloe is our our missions catalyst here at Cornerstone. Her responsibility is to help us network with our missions teams and also the other ministries that our church supports. And we've been really happy with how that's been a real uh, emerging part of our church life. But Chloe, who is my oldest daughter, and Cheryl's as well, obviously, um, (laughs) she she is someone who I have really uh, grown to appreciate the way in which she goes about her own devotional life. And originally, I had her slotted in the the final week, and a couple of other people who are going to be sharing in the next couple weeks were going to go ahead of, ahead of her. But she and uh, my wife and then our assistant creative arts director, Vincent, uh, are going to be going to India to visit the missionary teams and the churches, actually, that are there, the indigenous uh, missionaries that are there in India that we support. And they're going to go and do it for the first time, have um, someone other than uh, the Johnson family who has been there, our connection, someone actually go and see uh, all the things that we're actually supporting as a church and, and really just connect at a deeper level. So that was wh- why I'm saying that is because I asked her if she would consider, and Phil just said, well, let's just have her open up the song and of worship. And then I asked her if she'd just take a couple of minutes to share a bit of an insight. It doesn't have to be extensive, and I don't want to put her under a lot of pressure. But I wanted her to just give a, a perspective on how to go about, how she goes about her devotional life. And again, what I'm going to try and do is have a couple of others share in the coming weeks as well, just little small pieces. If it sparks an idea or something, you go, well, you know what? I I think I might want to try that. Uh, Then it will be a huge blessing. And so my, my whole idea is exposure to different ways of thinking about building our own personal life with God. And then what I'm going to do is I'm going to come back around and... I have a lot of, of things I'd like us to look at in a, in a somewhat limited time, but I felt this was a value and it was important. So that was my long way of saying. <laughs> Go ahead. I'm going to move this out of the way here. All right. <laughs> Hello. Um, so actually, he, he mentioned a good point. Um, this, is, this is my way of how I've, I've grown and, and 
kept my passion and desire of wanting to learn more about who God is. And um, I'm not saying that this is the right way to do it for you, because I really believe that the Lord is so creative in how he speaks to people. And But I did learn, and I have put into um, practice some habits that I hope will be beneficial for you guys. Um, actually, it was only about a month and a half ago that it was really when I started doing ministry here. I realized that I'm doing all this ministry, and I'm doing it for the kingdom, and but yet I felt like I really wasn't doing it for the Lord. It just was, it was my responsibilities and I needed to do them. And uh, I, I asked Priscilla Kaleha, I don't know if she's, uh, she's, the, she's part of the prayer ministry. Yeah, prayer team. And I said, can we meet up? And uh, she said, yeah. Um, so when we were over there, I started talking to her about how I don't even really have a prayer life. Like I don't even know what that really would look like on a daily basis. And she she actually sh shared with me um, what she does. And while I was talking to her, um, I realized, like, you know, I have a lot of meetings. I have a lot of stuff to do. How can I fill this? Um, how can I put prayer in there? And while I was talking to her, I said to myself, okay, if I can make these meetings on time, then the most important meeting should be my time with the Lord. And that should be my number one. And um, so what I did is I started waking up really early for me. And uh, <laughs> it's like 7.30. <laughs> but it was early. Um, so, and the first day she said, hey, Chloe, can you um, just be silent? Just be silent and don't say anything for like 20 minutes. And then, um, and then maybe you can, uh, you know, read your word or, or journal. And I said, okay. So when I woke up, early. Um, I, it was hard. I was like barely opening my eyes after a while. It was so hard to concentrate because I had so many, I just wanted to go to sleep. Um, I just thought that this was, this, I don't know if I'm doing this right. And um, I actually put on my timer. I put my timer on just for 30 minutes. So when the 30 minutes hit, I was like, wow, that is a long time not talking like I didn't I didn't know how to do that and what I realized is the next day I decided I didn't get anything I felt like I didn't get anything from it really but I decided to keep doing it and what ended up happening is I started cultivating this love for waking up early with the Lord and just being silent before God and feeling his presence and um I would encourage you maybe just to try it because it's something that's so unproductive. You're not doing anything. You're basically just sitting and you're just coming before God and saying, I'm here. And um, when you do that, the Lord can really speak to you. And he spoke to me and I, I was really blessed by it. And usually what I do after now, after having about 10, 20, 30 minutes of quiet time where I just silent, um, I'll read or I'll journal. And that's actually something I wanted to share with you guys is, is journaling. Um, journaling is something that I have been doing for years. And I just write down what the Lord has been teaching me uh, that day. And what I'll do is I'll read something in scripture. And if it speaks to me, that's what I'll write. So it's not really a diary. It's like your journal of, of your what the Lord's teaching you. So we actually, I asked if we could purchase some journals. 
for you guys if you wanted some in the back. So they are available. And what it is is it's a good way to also see where, where the Lord has taken you and what he's revealed to you throughout the days. Um, something that I, I find uh, is really beneficial because oftentimes we forget. We forget what the Lord has, has spoken to us or if the Lord is speaking to us. But when you write it down, you remember it because it's written. And then years from now, you can read back and say, wow, that's where I was and this is where I am now. So those are kind of my little tips. And <laughs> Ah, so for journaling, I'm curious, how many of you guys have journaled? Wow, yay. Um, so, um, yeah, so for journaling, what I decided is I used to, when I was like 13, I used to write diaries, you know, and write like everything that happened in my life. And what I decided it was going to be different. It's not going to be what happened every day in my life. It was going to be specifically what the Lord spoke to me that day. So what I do is when I read scripture, um, usually there's a verse that will stick out. So I'll write it down. And then, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I'll write it down. And um, then I'll also even, I'll even write about why it speaks to me. Or in this moment, um, why this was so encouraging. And then what I'll do is I'll write my prayer requests usually in there. Um, and it, it, there's, for me, it just, usually when I write my prayer requests, it's, it's really messy because I'm just like thinking. But um, so, and it doesn't have to be perfect. It's your thoughts, right? And you're just wanting to talk to God. Sometimes I use journaling to talk to God. When I can't concentrate early in the morning, I decide to write because that way I'm just, um, I'm doing something. You know, I'm writing to the Lord, and it's kind of like a letter to the Lord about, about what, what you want him to speak or what he has been speaking, and it's a really, it's a beautiful tool, um, and so I did want to share one verse. Is that okay? Yeah? Okay. Um, so if you have your Bibles, um, you can turn with me to Mark 1, 35. I just have a couple of scriptures that I wanted to share in relation to also coming to the Lord in a solitary place and coming before the Lord and just praying. And, and this is what Jesus, Jesus shows us. It says, very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Then if you also look in Luke, yeah, sorry, Luke, <laughs> Luke 5, 16. Um, it says, but Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. I think here we see evidence of a life of what it looks like. That doesn't mean we have to wake up really early before the sun rises, but what he's showing us is there's something about going into a solitary place, about being quiet, about not having any distractions, which is so uncommon in today's culture. But God, God can speak through those solitary times and through those lonely places where no one's there. And um, I would just encourage you to try it. So, Thank yeah. You. Thank you, Chloe. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Yay. <laughs> she did that because I had asked her to share a little bit. She's actually... Uh, 
Chloe is someone who actually has, in my opinion, established a pattern. She's maybe being a little bit modest, in my opinion, about how she goes about her devotional life. I've been very impressed with it. The point being is the idea of writing things down. I think it's important to have some mechanism for recall. And some of the most effective ways in which people become students of God's word is that when we read something that impacts us in the Bible, write it down, and why is that impacting us at this moment? It's, it's, it's a technique that people use frequently. Journaling is not necessarily for everyone. Some people do it every day. Uh, some might do it at every week. Some perhaps when they feel moved to over the course of a year, but there's a, a way of having a record of maybe how the Lord is speaking to us. So I, have, though, have a, I, wanted, I want us to ha- go somewhere in the time that we have left together, and, um, which is, I'm hoping, a little bit of substantial uh, engagement for us. So um, I tell you what, I know we're, we're recording this, but I'm going to go ahead and uh, I'm just going to pray. But if hmm, I want you to be able to stretch out a bit, but I'm looking at a lot of you already have your, just your whole space is set up. So <laughs> that's fine. If you feel like you need to, um, I'm just going to pray the Lord. I want to ask you to just be with us here as we come seriously before you to engage in your words. And uh, my prayer is for expansion in our lives. Um, I know that you have a deep interest in meeting us when we truly demonstrate that we are hungering and thirsting after what is right. You told us, blessed are you when you hunger and thirst for what is righteous in the eyes of God. After righteousness, you will be filled. And so, Lord, I pray that there would come an expansion of our understanding, of our knowledge base, of our capacity to um, grow in our understanding in an overarching way of your words. I pray that we just, just pick up and build. And so I ask for your blessing over our time and over what we've shared. And help us to be attentive, Lord. Not all of us are maybe quiet before you. Maybe sometimes we speak before you, our heart before you, Lord. But the key being is that we're, we're hungering and desiring. So we ask you to just give us an extension and an expansion of our understanding. Uh, I thank you, Lord, that you meet us here. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. God. All right. What I'm thinking of is this. I want to go back to a discussion that we had last week when we were talking about the uh, Older Testament. And I want to just make some comments. These are just things that I was, I was away spending some time with the Lord this last week thinking about all of you and uh, anyone who ultimately listens to this lesson online. And uh, I was thinking about the Old Testament, which we spent a lot of time, if you recall, trying to demonstrate in the scriptures, in the New Testament, why Jesus said it was important to know the Older Testament. And one of the contentions we were making is that anyone who's, who's really serious about following the Lord is going to see the value in having a genuine understanding and a base understanding of the, what we call the Old Testament or the Older Testament. And one of the things I, I found, just a fr- these are just phrases that I was trying to condense thoughts to simple phrases because I thought they would be helpful. Um, one of the things for me that I think is important for us to understand is not to judge the Old Testament out of a New Testament lens. And what I'm simply saying is that when you read about Jesus, when we read about um, you know, the way that the New Testament compels us to want to follow after God, sometimes, 
when you, this is just true, especially if you're newer, you'll look at the Older Testament, you'll say, wow, it just seems like God's so different in the Old Testament from Jesus in the New Testament. And then sometimes when we look at the Older Testament, we might say, you know, I, I don't, I mean, I don't really think that it, it is as valuable to me because, you know, it, it just seems to be contradictory in some ways, or just it feels different. And I want to say this, that it's important when we look at the Older Testament not to, not to allow our New Testament sensibilities to seep in too much. In other words, we start saying, well, how could God do that? Or why does this happen? I'll talk about that more in a moment, but it's important for us to just come in to try to embrace it for what it is um, in its own uniqueness, and then we'll see something else that will emerge. And I'll, I'll just get to that by saying this. The Old Testament, as we saw last week, prepares us for Christ. Some of you remember, some of us remember, that we have this verse in Matthew 5. So we'd like us to look at Matthew 5, 17. Matthew 5, 17 is an, is an important verse. Uh, these are the words of Jesus. And I'm going to try to give everybody a lot of extra time to get there. It's after, Matthew 5, 17 is actually follows one of my absolute most favorite verses of all time that you often hear me quote, you know, that we are to let our light so shine before men they may see our good works and glorify our Father who is in heaven. That's Matthew 5, 16. Right on the heels of Matthew 5, 16, in which I think Jesus gives us that amazing verse to let our light shine. He then says this, though, in 17. He says, do not think that I have come to destroy the law or the prophets. Now, you remember, you remember, if you can, just keep your finger in the Matthew there, Matthew 5, on the back side of the the handout that I gave you, Old Testament, New Testament, you saw the river of inspiration. Talk about that, the way the Bible's divided up. But on the other side, you see this canon of the Old Testament. You see that? It's got two columns in there. One is the Hebrew Bible, one is the English Bible that we have in, as our Bible now, the way it's divided up the Older Testament. I'm not going to go too back, back much further into this, Except to say that if you'll note that the original Hebrew Bible, notice this, in the, it had the former prophets and latter prophets. And then it has this one book called the Twelve. That's how they organized it. And so all what we call the minor prophets, the Twelve, they're just put in a category called the latter prophets. And they're under one book called the Twelve. But you can see that really, they're just, it's organized a little bit differently. So it's quite possible that that when Jesus is talking about the prophets, he's not necessarily talking about the way that our New Testament prophets were organized. Or, I mean, I should say our modern Bible, our English Bible, that's what I should say, is organized. But they had a sense of the scriptures organizationally. So when Jesus says in Matthew 5, 17, I didn't come to destroy the law or the prophets, he's talking about the writings of the Older Testament that we read here in our modern English Bibles. And he's basically saying, this is, I didn't come to destroy it. So anybody who thinks that Jesus was saying that somehow, you know, I'm here, and so all that stuff that was written before is sort of now no longer needed. He says, I didn't come to eradicate it. I didn't come to take a giant eraser and say it doesn't matter anymore. What he, what he says is, though, I've come to fulfill it. And that is a very different way. In other words, what he's saying is, the old, all that the old has prepared you for me. And it's intertwined. I, I think the Old Testament foreshadows the New Testament and is embedded in it. 
You can see it everywhere. I mean, I was reading the book of Hebrews today. If you go to the, in the New Testament book of Hebrews, which we're not going to go to, it, you, there is no way to read that book without having some, well, you can, anybody can read it. So I'm not going to say no one can't read it. But there, you can't appreciate, we can't appreciate so much of the New Testament, Romans, Hebrews especially, the book of Hebrews, without having a sense of the Older Testament, how it works, what it was that Jesus is talking about. Very, very important. I was, I was looking at, um, again, I mentioned John 5. We talked about how Jesus said, search the scriptures because they testify of me. And there was one other thing that I was thinking about as well. I just kind of put this up. These are just sort of things that I was kind of just simple concepts here. Um, I was looking at this. A working knowledge of the Old Testament is imperative for any sincere growing follower of Jesus. And um, I think that this idea of foreshadowing is a big deal in this working knowledge. For example, let me, let me have you look in your, in your, just a page over to Matthew 4. So we looked at Matthew 5, 17, when Jesus says, I didn't come to erase it, I came to bring it to its true fulfillment, all right? Then you look at Matthew 4. Look at how Matthew 4 starts, verses 1 through 11. So you see Matthew, the first book of the New Testament there. Then Jesus was led up, this is the temptation of Christ. He was led up by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights afterwards, he was hungry. And when the tempter came to him, he said, if you are the son of God, I want you to command these stones to become bread. But he answered and he said, look at verse four. He answered and he said, what does he say? It is written. And then Jesus quotes the scriptures to the evil one. He says, it is written. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. He quotes Deuteronomy 8.3. That's the Pentateuch. Remember we talked about the book of Deuteronomy, that fifth book, right? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy means, as we're going to see later, say it again, essentially. The, Jesus looked and says, then the, the devil took him up into the holy city, set him on a pinnacle of the temple. Look at verse 6. He said to him, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, he shall give, you, give his angels charge over you. So what's fascinating is what we're given here. And oh boy, we could spend just a lot of time talking about the temptation of Christ and the power movements that are going on here in Matthew 4. Fascinating because, think about this. The Bible says that Jesus, in his weakened state in his humanity, is engaging the enemy. And what, are, what is happening here at a spiritual level is there are, look what's being thrown back and forth. Look what happens. The, the evil one, we're told, in some way, shape, or form, throws back at Jesus a quote from Scripture. Quotes the Scripture to Jesus. He shall give his angels charge over you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against the stone. That's Psalm 91.11, Psalm 91.12. So now what's happening is Jesus goes, says, it is written in Deuteronomy. The enemy comes back and says, yeah, but it's written in Psalm 91. Then look what happens. Jesus said unto him, it is written again, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. Deuteronomy 6.16. This is all back and forth with, this, with the it is written is the Older Testament. That's what we're looking at. And then look what he goes on to say this. Again, the devil took him up to an, on an exceedingly high mountain. Look at verse 8. And showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give you if you fall down and worship me. 
And Jesus said to him, away with you, Satan. And here it is again. Jesus quotes the Older Testament. For it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Deuteronomy 6.13. And it says, and the devil left him, and behold, the angels came and ministered to him. Now, the reason I bring that up is because Jesus continues to say, as his primary defense at a spiritual level is it is written. And the it is written are referring to the, what we call the Older Testament. If Jesus saw it as outdated, he sure didn't seem like he was um, suggesting it was. He said it is written. The word, the what, he's basically saying God has spoken. So it's important to understand that. Now, what often happens is we find ourselves in places where we go, but some of the stuff that we're reading here seems so kind of harsh and can be sometimes seems like it's fierce. And if we're relating it to, out of a kind of a modern New Testament sensibility, it almost seems like a disconnect. I want to suggest that it's important to just take the Older Testament as it is. Don't read into it from the perspective in terms of just like our own sensibilities and start trying to judge it. Just read it as it is. There is a reason why God is giving us a record. He's giving us a twofold record. A lot of people say, well, it's just the history of the Jewish people. It is that, but that's not what it mainly is. It is a history of God at work in humanity. And that is a larger issue. It involves the overarching story of God. And yes, here's the thing, you guys, and this is, a, this is a principle that may not make sense to us immediately, but for, for some of us, as we will we'll appreciate it, is that a lot, of, a lot of the way in which God deals with human, the human race is changed in a significant way at the coming of Jesus. So the way in which God deals with humanity um, is far different before Christ than after Christ. Because Christ makes possible what all those animal sacrifices and the talk of blood and all the things that God instituted in types and shadows and for the people of Israel, which was designed to lead them ultimately to Messiah, is fulfilled in Christ. And what the Bible says that, that there was, an, when Jesus comes and when he dies, there's something that happens in the temple. There's a veil that's rent. And, and that, I, I, again, I, I could go deep, we can go deeply into this, but essentially what it's suggesting is that the, the way in which God's going to relate to human beings is now changed dramatically. In Christ, because of the ultimate sacrifice, that all the sacrifices of the Older Testament, the lambs, foreshadowed. And when John the Baptist meets, sees Jesus, he says, behold, the Lamb of God. That's his first statement. All those things that were foreshadowed are come to fulfillment in Jesus. And it says that there's a new kind of relationship that God has with human beings that wasn't possible before Christ. And Paul, when he's at this place called Mars Hill in Athens, when he goes to Greece and he begins to engage the philosophers, in Acts 17, he makes a statement that is very illuminative for us as it relates to this idea of the, of the Old Testament, New Testament. I want you to look at Acts 17 with me, if you can. And I put the passage there, Acts 17, 16, through 34. I want us just to look at this together. Again, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, what we often call the New Testament five books, which kind of matches the Old Testament five books. Acts is the fifth. So the book of Acts, the Acts of the Holy Spirit. 
at work. We're going to look at Acts 17. And as we look at Acts 17 together, we come to the 16th verse there. It says, Now while Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him when he saw the city was given over to idols. And therefore he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with the Gentile worshipers in the marketplace daily with those who happened to be there. And there were certain Epicurean and Stoic philosophers who encountered him. And some said, what does this, this babbler have to say? What does he want to say? Others said, he seems to be this weird, this strange proclaimer of foreign gods. Because why? Because he was talking to them about Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him to and brought him to the Areopagus, um, which was the top of the, uh, of, the, of, the, of, the, of the special place where they would have debate and exchange. And he says, may we know what this new doctrine, this new teaching is that you're speaking about, for you're bringing some really strange things to our ears, and therefore we want to know what these things mean. Go ahead. We want to give you some room to give an explanation for this, this Jesus and this idea that somehow he's the son of God and God's promised one and that he's been raised from the dead. And, and it says that um, for all the Athenians and foreigners who were there spent their time and nothing else either to tell or to hear some new thing. That was in, they were saying they always liked new, new ideas. And Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and he said to him, men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you're very religious. We would say, you guys are really spiritual people. And as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I found even, uh, I was one of your idols that had an inscription that said, to the unknown God. So you had all these gods, and just in case you missed one, you built a, 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 an image to the unknown God. You guys take this really seriously, Paul's saying. And he says, you know what? I want to talk to you about the one that you call the unknown God. And in his fascinating maneuver, he begins to, to say that this unknown God has revealed himself. Let me show you how. He says, therefore, the one whom you worship without even knowing him, him's the, he is the one that I'm actually proclaiming to you. He is the God, look at this, who made the world and everything in it, since he is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not dwell in temples made with hands. This is not a God who can be contained or carved out. You can't carve him out of stone and worship him. One of the real key distinctives that you're going to see in the Older Testament is that when God calls Abraham out of a polytheistic culture, and ultimately, as Israel is formed into a people, into a nation, they are reminded continually that God is never to be characterized by anything that we can conceive in our own mind. That he, you will have no, image, no graven images before you. You will not create an image and then fall down and worship it. Do you, it's like he's saying that is, that is so, God is not contained in anything that we can create and then worship. This is impossible. He, Paul goes to say this, I want to talk to you about the God who made the world and everything in it, since he is the Lord of heaven and the Lord of earth. He does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshipped with men's hands, as though he needed anything, since he gives to everyone life, breath, and all things. And he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth. Which, by the way, if I were spending a lot of time on this, I would say, notice, he didn't say, look at all the different ethnicities. He said, essentially, there's one race, it's called the human race. And he has appointed and determined their pre-appointed times and boundaries so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. God is far more near than we will ever know. That's what Paul's saying. This unknown God is so close to you. 
For in him we live and move and have our being. And, and as some of you, your own prof, poets have said, for we also are his offspring. Therefore, since we are the, basically the creation of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone or something shaped by art or man's devising. Now, key verse, you guys, verse 30. Truly, these times of ignorance God overlooked. The older version says God winked. What Paul is saying is that in the past, prior to Jesus, the way in which God dealt with human beings was very different than the way in which he is now dealing with them. He's saying this, that truly God overlooked a lot of the ignorance of people, but now he calls everyone, people everywhere to repent. And he has appointed a day on which he will judge this world on the righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He's talking about Jesus. He has given him assurance to this by raising him from the dead. He's talking about the resurrection of Christ. And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, while others said, we will hear you again on this matter. So Paul departed from among them. However, some actually did believe him and join him. And he names the name, one of whom was Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Demarius and others with them. People, some people actually believe the message of Christ. The point is this. There are some things that, got, that happened in the Old Testament that God essentially is not dealing with in a way that he deals with human beings now in light of Jesus' coming. That's what Paul's saying, that there is a difference. I think that's really important when we look at the Older Testament. If we judge it out of a context of, well, this is how we understand things because of Jesus, we will misinterpret a lot of the beauty of what God is actually doing in the Old Testament because it can look harsh at times. But there is something about it that God is not changing the culture until the coming. It's not about culture change. He's working within the context of human civilization as it is. And we will find that God actually is, in, is working with humanity in a, in a way that is, yes, there is a distance. And there are a lot of things that God's not really signing off on and some things he does that don't make sense to us because, again, everything has been changed by the ultimate sacrifice of God giving himself in Christ. That doesn't take away from the fact that the Jesus made it so clear that there is such a wealth of value in understanding how God moves through humanity to get us to him, that to understand the Old Testament is to watch the story of God working with the human race to get us to Jesus. And when Jesus comes, it changes everything. Everything changes. All of a sudden, we have a concept of the love of God that, that just takes us even further than what he had introduced. In my mind, the, the, there is a key principle here, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna just sort of push into it a little bit further. You have uh, in your handout, that's what it is. You've got a lot of different stuff here, but I wanna show you something. Look at the, it's called the importance of the Old Testament piece there. I want you to look at that with me real quick. It says, in, the stu in study as in worship, humankind needs the entire revelation, the whole Bible. The Old Testament belongs not to the Jewish people alone, but to all. It is the account of the ways in which God has worked. Oh, and by the way, somebody, somebody asked me, where did you get this? And I said, you know what? Uh, they said, who's the author? And I said, honestly, I don't know. I got it a long time ago, and I remember keeping it and saving it because I liked the way, and I, I don't know who wrote it. But they were very, very intelligent and loved God a lot. I can tell you that because I, whoever they are. But I'll, I'll show you this right here. Look what it says. It says, it, says, it says, it is the account of the ways in which God has worked. It's the summary of what he has demanded. It's the record of his preparation for Christ's coming. 
It is the best canvas, look at this, you guys, on which to catch the picture of his dealings with the human family through the centuries. In short, it is the indispensable foundation on which the New Testament is built. When Jesus says it is written, he's talking about the Older Testament. When he says, search the scriptures because they testify of me, he's talking about the Old Testament. When he opens up in Luke 24 to the disciples, all the things of the law and the prophets spoke about his coming. He's talking about the Older Testament. It's the foundation. When we see all the things that were symbolic in the Old Testament, the temple rituals, the sacrifice of, the, of, of animals, the blood of the lamb, um, all these different examples of people who had faith in their generation and a love for God, we see a progressive revelation of things. It's all that is foundational to understanding Jesus. It's such a huge benefit. They're tied together. Anybody, anybody who wants to really know and follow Christ is going to be serious, at least as a student, of understanding the Older Testament. It's so valuable as a background foundational piece. Look what he goes on to say. He says, it is, it is the best canvas on which to catch the picture of his dealings with the human family through the centuries. In short, it is the indispensable foundation on which the New Testament is built. To understand the Old Testament as Christian scripture, one must see it through the eyes of Jesus and the apostles. They were especially inspired by God's spirit to grasp the meaning of his revelatory words and deeds and the directions in which they are moving. Here's a key point, you guys. Yet at the same time, even as we're looking back at the Old Testament to see how it connects to Jesus, listen, at the same time, the modern reader must try to see the Old Testament passage on their own terms. The reader must ask, what was the Old Testament author saying to his own times? He or she must sit with the hearers in the marketplace or the city gate or the temple or the synagogue and try to understand his words as they heard them. He or she must see God through their eyes and discern his purposes in their lives. In other words, one must be sensitive to the original context of an Old Testament passage. Why was it written? When? What problems called it into being? What question was it initially intended to answer? What did it tell the people about God's will and his ways or about their responsibilities that they would not have otherwise known? Only when one understands the intent of a passage for the author's own times can he then or she catch the full significance of the passage for Christian faith and life. The Old Testament context will not tell all one needs to know about the meaning of a passage. However, unless one starts there, it becomes easy, and I'll tell you this happens all the time, it becomes easy then to twist the scriptures to one's own purposes. And I'll meet people. I had a conversation with two people who, were, who I saw were about to go to our, our house door. And I had a sense of what they were going to do. And, and I had been on the outside. And I, knew, and I knew my wife was busy. And I said, you know, Lord, I think I want to have a conversation. And, and if you're okay with that, I want to go talk to these two people who have a desire. They're very zealous. And they wouldn't be, ze they, they wouldn't be doing what they're doing, knocking on a door of, of a neighborhood if they weren't zealous, carrying Bibles and, and wearing suits. And I said, I, I would like to talk with them a bit. And so I decided to do it. This was Saturday. And I started to talk with them and uh, spent a lot of time talking with them. And what, what I noticed was happening 
is they were moving in and out of passages, verses that were being pulled out from the Old Testament, talking about things like the kingdom. And, and I, was, I was sitting there, and I honestly, the Lord gave me such compassion. I said, I can tell you love God at some level, or you wouldn't be doing this. I said, let me ask you a question. Are you, are you doing this to be saved? or because Jesus has saved you. And by the time we were done, it was, like, it was pretty clear to me. They were, they were doing this because they felt like they had to earn somehow their salvation. I said, listen, you'll never do enough good things to get your own salvation. And, and they said, well, look at, this, look at this verse in the Old Testament. I said, okay, I understand that verse. Let me tell you my take on it. But I said, listen, I said, all you're doing is you're just pulling out verses trying to support a system of thinking that is so narrow and law-bound that the grace of God is completely being missed, that we'll never be good enough for this. And as we were talking and sharing together, you know, I, I just found, I found my heart going out. I, I actually said this to him. I said, you know what? I said, listen. And I asked him a couple of questions about some things that I, I knew that they probably hadn't done that were in the Bible, and I showed them in the Bible how it says to do this. And then I said, are you doing this? And they said, well, no. And, and, and we had this. And I said, listen, I, I showed you those verses not to catch you so much. That wasn't my point. It was to show you that. It was to show you that I used to be like this. I used to be very self-righteous. And I would find pieces of the Bible to sort of justify things and build a case and instead of just taking it as it was. And I said, and I, I, said I, I used to get locked into that idea that I was one of the, you know, I really had a particular insight on things that not a lot of people had and felt really good about that. And I said, but you know what? God's so much bigger. He's got so much more, more for us, and he's such a much more loving God. And there are so many people who love him genuinely. And I just said, you know what? Don't try to take scriptures to build a case that sort of makes it, seem that this is how it is, and I'm pulling it out, and I'm using this verse, and here's what it says, and, and I'm saying, you're missing the larger point of God's heart for you, for people, for all of us, and we just, you know, I just had this really, actually for me, I got really blessed by the time I was done. I was, I was really blessed, and I, I, I felt, and then I actually did, I actually did something. I said, you know what? I want to invite you to come to church. I said, here's my card. I did. And you would have thought that card was like, like the most scariest thing in the world. As I said, look, I just, no, no, we can't do that. We can't do that. No, no, never. I was literally, I was walk up, I was like, backing off. I was like, just backing off. It was like I said, you, I, but I really felt like the Lord was saying is that you're very locked into uh, trying to pull scriptures out and just trying to take things out of the Old Testament to prove something that you want to justify. I said, so you're saying if people don't do it this way, then they're not really following the Lord. And I said, you're just, you're just, do you see how, I go, do you understand that in the, in the days of Jesus, there were people who were so careful about the law that they couldn't even see the one that the law was pointing to when he came. When he came. I said, you're missing the heart of God in this thing. And, and, and to me, this is what the Old Testament, if we, if we look at the Old Testament as a bunch of rules and regulations, we pull things out of it and don't appreciate it for its own value. That's what I'm trying to get at. 
its own value. We look at it, we, we say, okay, this is what it's saying in a larger context. And then as followers of Jesus, we can build off of that. He, let me just finish this by saying this. He says, however, unless one starts there, it becomes easy to twist the scripture to one's own purposes. Rather, the sense of the individual authors must be grasped in order to capture the meaning put there by the overall author, the spirit of God who speaks through all of the scripture and whose speaking gives the whole Bible its authority um, for his people. The Bible says all scripture is given by inspiration of God. It's profitable for doctrine, for correction, or for reproof. That's 2 Timothy 3. Peter talks about how no scripture is given through private interpretation. It was the spirit of God who moved on holy men. I put that very simple, and it is simple, little illustration of a loving God reveals himself to mankind. You can look at that a little bit later just because of the time frame. I want to move past this but what, I, what I'm trying to get at, and I think, I've, I think you're understanding what I'm saying, is that the Older Testament has a tremendous value, and it's God's word for us. Jesus quoted it. He talked about how he was in it. And by, by having the, uh, an understanding of the Older Testament, the New Testament becomes so much more alive and real and understandable. It's constantly weaving in and out. So it's imperative to know the Older Testament, to be acquainted with what's happening and how it's pointing us to Jesus. At the same time, it's an ongoing story of God at work in humanity. So it's got a parallel track. One hand is pointing us to the Messiah. On the other hand, it's about God moving through history, how he starts with the beginning, the Genesis. And how he begins to move in that human race to ultimately get to a point after uh, get to a point where he, the human race is so far away from where he, he had wanted it to go that he starts by calling out a man, a man who will become so significant in the New Testament, a man who's called the father of the faithful, a man named Abraham. Abraham becomes such a key figure. Out of Abraham ultimately comes his grandson Jacob, Israel. Out of Israel. Ultimately, we get Joseph. The people of Israel grow into a nation. They're led out of that bondage in, in Egypt. You get to a point where you have a deliverer, another type of Jesus, Moses. It comes into coming into the promised land. They become a people in the land that they are now at, in, right now, and where the Bible, so much of the Bible's Old Testament story takes place in the land of Canaan. I, I'm saying all that to show you that it ultimately weaves its way all the way to Jesus. But it's an ongoing story of God calling out a man, calling out a people, preparing an avenue to bring in his son. Now, thinking about with that in mind, what I want to do in the time that we have left is I want to, I want to create a better understanding of just some basic Bible, some Bible geography, and then give us a little concept of the eras of the Old Testament. So you'll notice you have a map in here. And uh, what I'd like us to look at first is what we're going to call, and this is kind of a, you've got these little fill-ins. And I did, we're going we're gonna to fill in. Uh, firstly, we'll start with the, uh, the bodies of water. Let's just do start that. And I want us, can some of us maybe can see this right now. You may know some things already. But this is really good to know because you're going to get these things coming up when you read the Bible. So let's just start with that first one, if we can. If you guys can put that up. It's the Mediterranean is number one. And the Mediterranean Sea is such a very big part of the, it's part of the 
Older Testament is part of the New Testament. The Mediterranean is still very much a center of where things are going to be. When we get to the time of Paul, it's going to be up there towards the north of the Mediterranean Sea. But that Medi- so number one is the Mediterranean. Um, if you go to number two, now we're talking about Israel, right? We're talking about the three important pieces of water that come up a lot. One, the Sea of Galilee. Number, that's number two, the Sea of Galilee. And that Sea of Galilee is a, a beautiful, beautiful sea. Uh, it's where Jesus, Jesus' ministry, his, most of his ministry in the north takes place around the Sea of Galilee. That's number two. Number three, number three is the river that flows out of the Sea of Galilee, the Jordan River. Very important when you think about crossing the Jordan which is what they're going to do when they enter into the promised land. They're baptizing in the Jordan River. That's the river that comes out of the Sea of Galilee. And it flows into this little shaped thing that's like a hot dog with a bite taken out of it. And it doesn't go anywhere. The water just sits there and produces some of the most amazing water that you're ever going to experience if you actually can float in it. It's the Dead Sea. The Dead Sea, you can see how those three bodies of water, they're all over the, you hear them a lot when you talk about the world of the Bible, right? The Sea of Galilee in the north, the Jordan River, the Dead Sea on the, on the south. And then if you just go over there, many of us probably already know what number five is. It's one of the great rivers of the world. It is the Nile River. And then two other significant rivers that are going to come up in the, in the Bible. Obviously, the Nile is going to be a factor. When the children of Israel are in Egypt, enslaved. But there's two other rivers there. You see six and seven. Those rivers actually are in the... <laughs> all this area is so much in the center of the world's focus today. But we're talking about number six, the Tigris. And you'll often hear these two river, rivers couple together. The Tigris and the Euphrates. And these are two significant rivers. They're going to come up because they're connected to two of the great kingdoms of the Old Testament. Two of the great military powers who had dominion are connected to these two rivers. And then, and then the last one is just put there because it's part of our news today a lot of times, and it's good to see where it is in relation to everything. It's the Persian Gulf. And the Persian Gulf is interesting because on one side you have Saudi Arabia and on the other side you have Iran. And those two places are still so much in the center. In fact, we think that the Garden, and I'll just say this, the Garden of Eden, most people believe, starts somewhere. When the Lord starts civilization, it's somewhere at the bottom between the Euphrates and the Tigris. That that's where it seems like it was. There are reasons for it. It says four rivers, two are only named that we know of, Tigris and Euphrates. But these are, that's another story. Now, so you kind of have an idea of just the main sort of water bodies. Now we're going to talk about the main regions. And this is, again, just a foundational for us, if we can. And just for us to get a working knowledge, you can fill this in as well. So... A, what would A be? A is what we call Canaan. It's also known as uh, Israel and Palestine. Those are three 
words that are used. I mean, I mean, this is important, you guys. In the Old Testament, when you first see this region introduced, it's called Canaan. It means the promised land, right? Canaan. They're going to go to Canaan. But as time goes on, eventually Canaan becomes known as Israel. Then, you'll know this word, by the time the Romans come in, they give it a new name. What do you think that name is? It goes from Canaan, Israel, and it becomes called by the Romans, Palestine. And so that, it, those three words can be seen as interchangeable. Canaan, and then for most of the Bible, that's the region of Israel. And Palestine is kind of a Roman word, but it's still something that refers to that region during the time of Christ. It's called Palestine. But it's really Canaan or Israel. And, and then you'll remember it's Canaan and the inhabitants, as you're going to see, when Israel is coming from Egypt, there are Canaanites in the land. They're inhabitants of that land. Okay, B. What do you think B is? B is the great city. You almost have to say it with some degree of majesty. Jerusalem, right? It's Jerusalem. And Jerusalem is like the city. It's still the, the great city of the world in so many ways. It's, it's a powder keg as well. C, you would know that. It's the grand dam of the, of the nations of the east. It's, the, it's Egypt. Moses lived in Egypt, right? And uh, D is Assyria. Assyria is the first power. And you notice the, the connection to the, the modern state of Syria. Assyria was the first kingdom that became like a military power that, old, that takes out a part of, of the nation of Israel. Um, they sort of are the first ones to sort of use military, they're military dominant power, but they are overtaken in the Bible. In the Bible, you almost have to be aware of four great military powers that follow on the heels of Assyria. Assyria is kind of a more localized military power that God uses as a judgment on his people at some level. They're engaged in warfare with Assyria. But Assyria is overcome by this stunning power, military power, and that power is going to be what we, we fill in, in here in our, in our, as E. It's the great Babylonians. The Babylon, Babylon um, which by the way, is for the most part modern-day Iraq. The Babylonians, they were, they were the, the, under Nebuchadnezzar, they were the first real world dominant power of that region. Uh, they're, they're described in the Bible in, in a variety of ways. A lion, you'll see, we'll get into all, some of that as, as best as we can in the next couple weeks. Babylon is followed, it's overtaken. Babylon takes over everything, but then it's overtaken by another kingdom. That kingdom is the kingdom that's F. It's the kingdom of Persia, which is modern-day Iran. These are all over the Bible. This stuff's been going on for a while. And we're talking about now, you know what ends up happening? This is we're jumping ahead of ourselves. But you have these kingdoms come one after another, these great military powers. And the Jewish people and what God's doing is all intertwined with these world power movements that are going on. And what you're going to see in the Old Testament is that you've got huge world movements, military, geopolitical realignments happening in this region. Because what follows 
when, when Assyria is taken over by what starts out to be what the, the Babylonians, the Babylonians are ultimately taken over by the Persians. Persians are ultimately taken over by what is described in the Bible like, is like a leopard, this, this amazing force of, with great mobility. The Bible prophesies essentially of it. It's, it's the Greeks and Alexander who had these new military uh, concepts um, and strategies and tactics that they use. And ultimately, Alexander takes over that kingdom. And then, of course, you have the emergence of the greatest of all the world powers, the ones who built the roads and the highways that sets up the New Testament movement through the known world, the Roman Empire. One follows after the other. In the middle of all of this, these world powers moving, God is doing something. And the Old Testament chronicles the movement of God that starts with a man who's called out of a culture that was polytheistic to believe in the one true living God. And out of this man's faith, again, he begins a movement that creates ultimately a people who have characteristics out of which he's going to bring forth not just a way of being that is in alignment with who he is, but ultimately to bring forth Messiah through this people. So a man becomes a people. And all of that is happening while you're seeing all these movements, world movements, power movements going on. It's a fascinating kind of thing to think about how God is working out his purposes while all the world, kingdom, listen, did not Jesus say this? Kingdoms will rise, kingdoms will fall. Through it all, the Lord works his purpose. And he works it to the coming of Jesus. Jesus shows up at an absolutely critical, look, God decided to have Jesus come at the exact time where there was more peace and in the world than there had ever been, and more capacity for movement. The Pax Romana, the, the, the militarily orchestrated world peace that had come from the Romans that had built these amazing road systems, um, highways and water ducts and just things, ways in which people could get around the world. It was perfect for, this, for the gospel to spread. The perfect timing of God, all built to a culmination point. And I, you, just, you just look at how it works and you just go, this is amazing. How it's all building to a moment. And when that moment comes, the world is like a, it's like a pregnancy ready to come out. And then the word of God just goes out in an amazing way in the New Testament, the early church. Okay, having said that, let's just quickly. Now I want us to do is think about the Older Testament, you guys, which you kind of got an idea of the geography of it. I want us to think of it in terms of eras. Now, any proximity between, notice it says nine eras. It could also, it almost somebody said, isn't that kind of like niners? I said, no, nine eras, <laughs> nine eras. So I want us to think about, this is not my original idea. This was from a, a book that I also read when I was a young believer, or at least, yeah, I was a young teacher, Bible teacher. Um, and I was looking for a way to teach the Old Testament. And I remember reading a book by a man named Max Anders called 30 Days to Understanding Your Bible. And someone told me that they've actually reprinted that in 2011. One of the things he did that I thought was quite impressive is he said, let's look at the Old Testament from the perspective of eras. So I want us, this is to me, again, the purpose here is to give all of us 
a working understanding of how to think about God's word, specifically the Old Testament as it's going to get us to the new. I want you to have a better understanding of the movement of God, and we're going to take this kind of larger, big picture look at it. One of the ways we can do that is through eras. You have a creation era, a patriarch era, an exodus era, a conquest era, a judges era, a kingdom era, an exile era, a return era, and then the era right before the emergence of Jesus. The silence broken by the voice crying in the wilderness. 400 years of zero activity and no prophetic word, like the prelude before a movement that would change everything. For the silence precedes the coming of John the Baptist. And John the Baptist heralds the way like a trumpet blowing out of the silence of four centuries. All that God has promised is about to be fulfilled before your very eyes. Behold, the one who comes, whose latchet, whose shoe I'm not worthy to untie. That is the way in which the Old Testament breaks into the new. And, and by the way, I love it because it's almost like in the, in the Christmas moment, it's like the music starts. The music starts of all that has been anticipated. Now, these eras are really important. Um, and I'm going I'm to just say this, and we'll get into the details a little bit more in the next two weeks. The creation and the patriarch eras, these eras focus really predominantly on the book of Genesis. And the book of Genesis can be broken down, if you think of it this way, into two pieces. Predominantly, Genesis, and this is so small, I'll write it up here. Genesis um, 1 through 11 is the creation era. That's, we're going to talk about that. The, the rest of Genesis, starting with chapter 12 and going all the way through, that takes us into what we call the patriarch era. When we talk about the patriarch era, we're talking about the fathers. We're talking about, when you hear this phrase, it's one of the key phrases, you guys, in the Bible. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. That is connected to this movement of the patriarch era. When God calls out a man and begins to form out of that man, he says, out of you, out of you and your descendants, out of your seed, all the nations of the world will be blessed. I've chosen this pathway as my instrument for bringing in Jesus. They, they would say at that time, the promised one, Messiah. Okay? The idea is, though, you have interesting about 11 chapters in which it basically gets us to God moving in the life of a man. It's fascinating. And, and, oh, and if, you were to, if you were to take it, and I'll just kind of close with this in these close, well, at least I'll have us look at this. If you look at the, the, what we call the creation era, it's kind of built around four things, and I'll just kind of write them down, and I have them, we'll put it as uh, creation, and this is again under this era. It, it kind of breaks down into four ways creation, God begins humanity as we know it, in the world as we know it, it's described. After creation, we see what is, we call the fall, or the loss of relationship with God, the breaking in of sin into this world, um, the changing of the human equation that dramatically alters, for it says that is when death enters into the human race. And the intimacy with God is lost. You remember that moment? Some of you, if you read about it, you'll see that 
We don't know how long it was. But there was a period where there was tremendous intimacy between God and, and Adam. And that was broken, that was lost. And in the breaking of that innocence, remember for the first time he's aware that if you read it, you see, you all of a sudden you see he's naked. He senses his nakedness. He, he tries to hide from, the first time he, he hides from God. He's hiding, he's in fear. And it changes everything. And God does something. God clothes Adam by slaying an animal and giving him. It's the first, people talk about it as the first movement of God providing a covering. It's fascinating because that's ultimately what God will do in Jesus. The ultimate covering, slain, the Lamb of God. It, there's this great prophecy that's made. Anyway, the point is, you have the creation, you have the fall, and then you have two other things that you, you guys will be aware of that occur in that first era. You have the flood, right? And before that, I think I should have put that in there first. And then you also have what's called the tower, which is the Tower of Babel. So you have, you have these four pieces. To, if you were to break the creation era down, it would be the creation of humanity as we know it, the loss of relationship with God, what we call the fall of man. The entrance of sin in this world is described in Genesis, this first 11 chapters. And then you have the whole Noah account with the flood, which is fascinating in and of itself. It's kind of ju God's judgment. I think they're going to make a movie out about, it, about it that um, this year. I think, I think Russell Crowe's going to be playing Noah, if I'm not mistaken. <laughs> that should be very interesting, by the way, how they pull that off with today's modern technology. It's a bit of extra trivia thrown in. You know. <laughs> and then we have what's called the tower, the tower, the tower of Babel, which is an interesting thing. A lot of people, they'll use that phrase, the tower of Babel, because it was, it was one of those moments where humanity was, was doing things, but in a destructive way, um, fascinating, the tower of Babel. Ultimately, God, God uses a kind of, I would call it a, uh, a way of changing that equation dramatically. Um, he scatters humanity. But anyway, the book of, I don't want to go too far. The book of Genesis is, di is divided into these two pieces. This piece is we're going to look at, and we'll pick back up here next, next week, is, is a key moment occurs when it looks like the human race is kind of just cut off. And God decides he will do a new thing through a man who he's only asking him to do one thing, to have faith, to believe that God can use him in a way that will change this world, and he does. And Paul is going to constantly refer back to this moment in the New Testament. He goes all the way back consistently to this moment because Abraham is such a key figure, a key figure in the Bible. Jesus, everybody's, to, to know, you have to know about Abraham to really understand so much of the New Testament doctrine of faith. We talk about how we're not made right in the eyes of God by what we do, but by what we believe. Jesus, Jesus himself, and Paul does it in an amazing way. He says, you guys are bound up in Moses, but before there was ever Moses in the law, there was Abraham and faith. And the just shall live by faith. We, and then he says, it's faith in Christ that ultimately is what saves us. It's a beautiful, 
beautiful tie-in that occurs there. But it all starts with a man named Abraham, from Abraham to Isaac. Isaac, the son that he, God chooses. And then from Isaac, out of Isaac, he has two sons, right? Esau and Jacob. Fascinating story there. Just stay with me on this one. Mom loves Esau, Jacob. Dad loves Esau. Mom wins out. Jacob ends up. You know what Jacob ends up having his name changed to? Israel. There's the name. God says the promise will go through Isaac, not Ishmael, which is a whole other story. It will go through Jacob, not Esau. And out of that comes the 12, the sons of Jacob, one of whom is his favorite, named Joseph. Joseph, loved in an unhealthy way, it looks like, by his father, Jacob, right? And at what happens to Jacob, and there's a reason for that, Joseph is sold into slavery. It looks like, looks like you know, this whole thing's a mess. God ultimately uses Joseph to save his people. Joseph is, many people think of Joseph as kind of like a type of Christ. He becomes a deliverer in his own way. That leads us all the way into a time where then Moses comes on the scene because there's a point, a long period of time between the patriarch era and then the Exodus era where Israel is enslaved, but they grow into a mighty nation. So that is the gist. We're going we're gonna to dive into the eras a little bit. The goal is to get everybody a working knowledge of the kind of the history and the preparation of God moving through time to get us to Jesus. So I'm going to pray. We'll ask God to just bless our time. We've shared already tonight. And Lord, I want to I thank you because you invite us to, to, to learn of you. And I pray that we would gain a deeper appreciation for the nuances of your words and the way in which you work through history. And I pray, Lord, that in the same way that you called out a man to have faith, that you would also continue to call us out to have a deeper faith with you, that our love for you would grow, that our passion would grow, and that our understanding of your words and what they mean. Ah, I pray for an enlargement. I really do, God. A deeper love, a deeper appreciation for the amazing way in which you've worked in human history. And I pray that by the time that we're done, we'll just feel even more confident in knowing about your words, kind of having a sense of how it, it's all put together, and that'll prepare us, Lord, to have a better understanding and appreciation for what we have in you, in Jesus our Savior. So I ask for your blessing. Bless our time that we've had. Bless the rest of this week. But most of all, bless our heart to have a growing love for you and your ways. This is what we ask in Jesus' name. Amen, God. All right. All right, you guys. Blessings to all of you. All right. And give one another a hug, okay, on the way out there. Put the Texas up. There you go. Real quick. It gives you a context for the size of Palestine. Look at this. That's what that was for. You see, see that's the map of today. Now you see Texas go over it. And it really, look at, look at the size. One state is essentially that entire center of the world. Look at that. It was worth doing that. Good job. All right. <laughs> Very cool.